Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao. Here with me today is my co-host Owen Ingo. Owen, would you like to introduce our guest today? Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm very excited about our guest today. Um, Tom Lydon, he's he's one of the early solar pioneers. Since the 1980s, he's been fighting for a clean energy future all across the US and, and abroad. After numerous positions in the renewable energy industry, in 2016, he joined EDF Renewable Energy, which is a global leader in renewable energy and storage with six gigawatts of wind and solar in North America and 824 megawatt hours of storage worldwide. At EDF, Tom serves as a senior director and helps lead at Solar Plus Storage Group. Tom's also a graduate of Princeton University, class of 77, and has played a huge role in helping our campus become cleaner and greener in its energy consumption. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Great to be here, guys. So I think I'd love to kind of start off by, by talking a little bit about your career. Obviously, you've, you've held numerous positions across, across the industry, and you've been uh, global, you've been to Africa, you've been to East Asia, and you spent your entire career in the clean energy industry. So what led you to this field back in the 1980s, and how has your view on kind of the entire clean energy world changed over time? Yeah, I, so I was always interested in the environment uh, since high school. I had a great uh, biology teacher, <laughs> kind of inspired me. And, and, and actually at Princeton, um, I took Rocks for Jocks. You guys know that course. The, I don't know if they still call, call it Rocks for Jocks, but it's the introduction to geology. Stars for stoners, everything like that, you know. Is that what it is? Okay. Um, and I did a paper on solar energy and I just kind of turned me on. Um, that was my senior year. And after uh, school, um, I, I moved down to Maryland with some friends of mine and ended up working with a, um, with a real estate company. But I worked with a, a builder there, and he and I started the company uh, to do solar energy. This is in 1980 now. Um, and back then, it was solar thermal. So Jimmy Carter had put an investment tax credit in place. And so we were selling solar hot water systems, solar heating systems, some solar pool systems, and built a little company uh, based on that called Maryland Energy Systems. So that was my start. And the truth is, once you get a bug in our industry, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to do something else. So um, I actually got out for a few years because when Reagan got elected, he pulled the tax credit, and uh, without the tax credit, the industry kind of collapsed. So I did something else for a few years. I, I ran a, I owned and operated a company up in Montreal actually. Um, but after leaving Montreal, I came back and I came back into the solar industry, but this time um, on the photovoltaic side, because at that point, the cost of photovoltaics had come down and there were some incentives available around the country where you can actually make a, a financeable solar project. And from that point on, I had uh, I joined um, I either joined existing companies or I started my own. So I've I've been working for almost forty years now in the industry. Believe it or not, the industry was nothing when I started, uh, and I worked with one company or the other, working on photovoltaics mostly. So at this point, the industry has come so far. <laughs> Uh, that we're actually at a point, and it's really was 19, it was 2020 where this happened. We, we reached a point where solar energy is cheaper than building new generation, any kind of new generation, oil, gas, uh, nuclear, uh, and coal. And so now um, the industry's taking off in, in, in a very big way. Uh, we have more jobs in the solar industry than the steel and coal industry combined. And uh, our costs keep coming down. So it's pretty exciting for me to have seen this trajectory over my career. Um, and I'm excited about working with, with people like you to, to join us in, this, in the industry and, and, and help the industry grow to get to a point where we could be 100% renewable within our lifetime. Absolutely. And I, I really enjoyed kind of your thoughts on on some of the tax stuff in terms of how that affected the industry early on. Um, we're, we're thinking about how 
how Carter put solar panels on his his own White House roof and subsequently got taken off and all that jazz. Um, so one one important thing in, in solar financing and in uh, clean energy financing as a whole is this tax structure. So uh, I would love to kind of dive into that. How, how does the fluctuation of policy affect the types of projects you invest in? And how do you account for potential changes in federal or state tax codes when you're, you're kind of diving into the, the nitty gritty details of those projects? Yeah, and it's very important, obviously. Um, just a little side note, uh, Reagan took those panels off the White House. George Bush Jr. put them back on. So they're actually, there is solar at the White House now. Uh, Trump probably has no idea. Um, I don't want him to know because maybe he'll take them off too. Um, anyway, uh, the US doesn't really have a coherent national energy policy. They've kind of left it up to the states. And so what's happened, um, the federal government has provided some incentives over time, nowhere near the incentives and subsidies they give to the fossil fuel industry. Um, but an investment tax credit was put in place. Um, it actually started during the uh, Reagan years, believe it or not. Um, and it's gone, it's fluctuated up and down a little bit, but by and large, we've had investment tax credit at the federal level, which is a good starting point, but not enough to make the numbers work well enough that it's financeable. Uh, most solar systems are not financeable. Uh, so what's happened, <clears throat> what's happened is a lot of the states or several of the states have, have jumped in and provided their own incentives. California being the number one state in the country by far with the uh, ongoing incentives that they've provided there and various programs to support clean energy and energy efficiency. Um, New Jersey, by the way, is, has been one of the best states consistently for, for years now. I've been in New Jersey since 2000 working on solar here. I've been involved in policy development um, and um, they have put in place not only a pretty good renewable portfolio standard, which includes a solar carve out, but also also incentives that help make the uh, the projects financeable. Yeah, absolutely, and and I completely agree that New Jersey's kind of been at the forefront. Um, and and one thing that has happened quite recently, I don't know if you've you've seen this, but New Jersey just passed one of the most comprehensive social and environmental justice laws in the country. And the law forces industrial sites to consider cumulative impact and the potential disproportionate effect of certain projects on some communities. So what's kind of your view on this in this uh, movement of social environmental justice and, and the intersection of those two? And, and how do you at EDF promote this type of justice through your work? Yeah, I think actually by, by the nature of our technology, uh, it, it's very democratic in a way, um, democratic with a small d. Um, and I think the most clear uh, connection to social justice is what's emerging uh, as, as a pretty significant um, uh, policy um, uh, construct, which is community solar. So the industry, the, the solar industry has pretty much been growing up on uh, residential solar sold to people that can afford it or financed um, through various parties, but also to people that have credit and uh, or commercial and industrial projects to credit worthy entities. Um, and so what's happened is the people that are low and moderate income haven't had access to solar and its benefits. Um, and so this community solar uh, construct has been developed over the last several years where we can build a larger uh, solar project somewhere off-site um, and put the energy, the electrons into the grid, and we can give a credit from that system to people at low and moderate income. So that community solar has now given access to the solar industry and its benefits to even people that are in low and moderate income. That's probably that's probably the best thing. The other thing is. You know, when, whenever you build solar, you're you're reducing the need for coal or or natural gas fired power, and a lot of um, uh, lower income people are around those power plants, um, and so that's uh, that that will alleviate that issue as well. 
Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed kind of hearing your thoughts on the small d democratic aspects and and thinking about how um, the community solar is is a big part of that um, reach towards environmental and, and social justice. You spent a good amount of your career abroad um, in, in a lot of countries that had much lower GDP per capita um, and, and were experiencing community solar and community renewable energy on a, on a different level than, than many Americans might experience it. So I'd love to kind of hear about your experience there and, and um, how that shaped your view on community solar and, and these concepts. Yeah, um, so I spent six years of my career doing that uh, for a company called World Water. Um, and, and our main focus was solar water pumping in remote areas. But we would do solar water pumping and we would do power systems. Uh, and, and this was just bringing power energy to these remote areas that don't have it. So multiple countries in Africa uh, where people are literally using kerosene lanterns still um and don't have access to electricity um and we were able to get projects funded through various um sources you know most mostly charitable but some governments um would, would provide some benefits or some uh, support um that was a really like enriching part of my life um, because when you bring power or you bring clean water to these areas that now don't have that, it, it was just so rewarding. Um, so what's happened since then is the private sector is pretty much picking up in a lot of those areas where you have entrepreneurs of various stripes that are they're actually making businesses out of it. Uh, so place like India now, India has a lot of solar. Uh, Philippines, where I spent a lot of my time doing solar water pumping, there are solar uh, companies there now, um, significant ones, including one run by a Princetonian, by the way, um, that have created a sustainable business model. Um, so that's all good. So we're starting to get you know solar to places where they need it most. Um, you could say that's the highest and best use of our technology because these people didn't have access to good, reliable power or safe power. Uh, and how that relates back to uh, developed world is as you gain, as you get more volume in our technology, the prices come down. And that's really the story of the industry. The prices have continued to come down. They've leveled off a little bit now because we're reaching um, diminishing returns, but uh, they still continue to go down and it's made it to the point where even in even developed countries like the US, it's now the best way to generate new power. So Tom, one thing that I'd love to touch on is in 2011, when reflecting on some of your experiences abroad, you, you published an awesome article called Solar Power for Peace. Would you mind describing your view on this piece and how you came to write this? Yeah, great. Um, there was this period in my career where I was going around the world doing solar water pumping and solar power systems I worked with a company called World Water. Um, so I got to vi visit literally like 31, 32 countries, uh, all mostly emerging countries. And we were putting in solar water pumping systems or, or remote power systems. And, you know, I'd go into these villages like in Angola, as an example, I, I went, uh, we had, um, we had a sponsor from, from uh, Switzerland that had donated some money to put in a solar power system at a clinic in, in the middle of Angola. Uh, and I decided I was going to go over there and help them put it in. You know, besides, uh, that's not my job. My job was to develop projects and, you know, basically I was VP of uh, sales and marketing. But I decided to go and put it in. And it was really eye-opening for me. First of all, you, you, you go into Angola and it looks like it's bombed out, you know? Um, and you get into this, we were in, um, we were putting this thing into a clinic, a, a medical clinic. And um, the, the, it was for power, for electricity in the clinic and also to, to pump their water. So they had a diesel generator, which is a lot, a lot of these remote areas that don't have power to the grid. Um, and, 
we were able, I was able to in a week working with the local people, these the 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 indigenous people <laughs> did not speak English, and I'm showing them by sign language and stuff what to do to help me to install this. And in just a matter of a few days, we were able to put in a solar power system for the clinic so they have light um, for their operation, you know, for the operation center and uh, for, the, for the clinic in general, and also uh, energy to power their pump. Before they had a diesel genset, but the diesel genset would always break down and they needed power and they needed, uh, you know, uh, maintenance, which was very common. The value of that project was, you know, $10,000, $12,000. So when I left, it's like I knew in my mind, it's like the value of that system for those people is invaluable. Um, and, And that was one experience. Another is we had some success in the Philippines with solar water pumping, mostly uh, moving water from one um, uh, one area to the other for their crops, for, mostly for irrigation. But a lot of these countries, um, emerging countries, we were able to get to high levels of government, and and typically we'd meet them and like we meet with the Minister of Energy or the Ministry of Water. In the case of Philippines, we were actually connected to President Ramos at the time. And um, after doing a few of these solar water pumping projects, he called us into his office to talk about um, providing a solar water pumping system for the rebels, the Muslim rebels in Mindanao. Um, And I don't know if you know this, but there's this island called Mindanao in, in the Philippines that the rebels have controlled for years. So President Ramos, who used to be a General Ramos, um, asked us to go down there and put the the solar water pumping system in as a peace initiative, which we did. So I I wasn't there to do that, but our guys were. Afterwards, uh, some weeks afterwards, I I met with the US ambassadors, a guy named Thomas Hubbard. And he told us the goodwill that we got from putting that $10,000, $12,000 solar solar water pumping system in uh, in the rebel camp was incredibly valuable and it created this huge amount of goodwill. Um, So those those two experiences like reminded me of how valuable doing real things for our foreign relations. Um, In fact, Secretary Mattis, you know, I, I wrote in, in the in the piece in the Solar Power for Peace article, said that the more we put into the State Department diplomacy, the less we have to put into military budget. It's so my point of this piece is like we have the opportunity to use our technology, and instead of sending over drones and planes and bombs, we could we could help these other countries that don't have access to clean power, or or power at all. Um, and provide a economic infrastructure for them. And those kind of investments are way more valuable than sending over bombs or, you know, RVs and, um, uh, you know, planes and things like that. So that's that's my point of, of the article. I, I think we could do a lot better uh, than spending $700 billion a year on military equipment we could be a lot more effective by putting things in place that help people improve their lives. Uh, Tom, I guess I'm more of a newcomer here compared to Owen when it comes to the energy knowledge. So maybe I'll ask you a a couple of very naive and foundational questions about solar energy. So we talked about uh, community solar. We we talked about how it's democratic. uh, It's easier for the community. It's renewable. Uh, How does this currently actually work right now so for example if i'm an average household either in new jersey or in a developing country like india or the philippines uh, do, do i just get a couple panels and then directly plug it in into my own homes and that will work or does it fit into a larger uh, grid that, that that is already working um how does this process exactly work yeah it's interesting it's, it's another cool thing about solar is it's modular it's extremely modular so literally a solar panel, a solar module, we call them, <clears throat> a single one can be hooked up to a car battery, positive, negative lead and charge it. 
So that's that's the most um, you know um, simple. Um, if you want more energy, you, you put more panels together, and your home will have twenty panels. A you know Johnson and Johnson uh, manufacturing will have five thousand panels. Same panel, just connected differently. Same components, basically same components. So you have these panels that create DC energy. They go into a conversion or uh, system or an inverter, so-called, that converts the DC power to AC, and the AC power goes into the building. Uh, and and that's true whether it's a home, whether it's uh, you know Home Depot, or whether um, it's going into the grid directly. Owen and I interviewed uh, Professor Dan Kamen from uh, UC Berkeley just last week, and he talked about this concept of microgrid. Uh, yep. is, is this kind of the similar idea here? So microgrid uh, has a lot of different uh, uh, a lot of different versions of microgrid. Microgrid just means that you have your own little grid that's self-sustaining, right? So if you have three solar panels and a battery and a light, that's a little microgrid, right? And if you're home, you have solar on, on the roof and you have batteries in the basement and, and the other electronic equipment, you could run your home when the power goes out. That's a microgrid. A microgrid could be more complex where you have a diesel generator, you have batteries, you have solar, you have wind. Um, for instance, EDF uh, is the utility in, in France and they're responsible for all the French islands. And all those islands are microgrids by nature. Micro just means smaller grids. Um, and so there is kind of a movement now to be have more of that microgrid capability because power is not as reliable it used to be because we're having more storms and more you know intense weather conditions there are fires on california right now there's hurricanes coming up through the gulf those are places where a microgrid would be really uh, effective because they're they're small and they're redundant um and um just provides power, uh, there's more resiliency with microgrids. I also wanna follow up and, and talk about a, a different concept related to the grid. Um, in, tw in 2008, you joined industry experts and testified on the need for greater infrastructure investment and the role that investment could play in economic recovery. In your speech, you mentioned grid parity. Do you mind elaborating on what grid parity is and, and why it's so significant? And then also whether you foresee the U.S. reaching grid parity at, at any point in the near future. So when was this, 2008? Yes. yes we sir. keep referring back to stuff from many, many years ago. <laughs> no, but the, this is the great news. We've reached grid parity this year. So from 2008, 2020, great, 12 years later. Um, so grid parity just means that the, it, solar is going to be the you know, the new source of energy. And in fact, it is, I mean, renewables, wind and solar, both, um, you know, we always complain in the past about all, all these conventional sources of energy, oil, gas, nuclear, so forth. They always had subsidies, lots of subsidies. And we always had to fight for our subsidies. We maintained from the very beginning, if it was a play, level playing field, no subsidies there, no subsidies for us, we would, we could compete. Well, now we're competing, even without those uh, uh, massive subsidies that the fossil fuel industry gets. So the exciting news is we've reached grid parity. Um, you know, I spoke at a divest uh, fossil fuel um, event recently. There is no reason to be investing in fossil fuel plants now. Pipelines, you know, gas generators, um, and there's billions of dollars being planned for, for those because solar is now cheaper than those. Solar and batteries and what's called clean energy portfolio, demand reduction, um, that combination of technologies is cheaper than building new gas generation, okay? So that's grid, that's grid parity. The interesting thing there is that like by 2035, even operating existing gas plants will be more expensive than building new renewable plants. So we've reached that grid parity. 
you know, you, you listen to some of the debates that are going on now uh, politically about climate change. Um, and this idea of, of natural gas as a tradition tra transition fuel, which has been true, that's a cleaner way to generate electricity than coal. So a lot of coal plants have, have switched to natural gas. That's why this is demand from pipelines, gas pipelines. But that transition's over now, starting this year. The transition is done. So even um, even Joe Biden is talking about transition still to you know to where we want to be in renewables. Uh, and I think that's true. That that's what's going to happen over the next several years. But we can accelerate that now because financially, it's better to transition sooner than later. There's a lot of, lot of stuff to unpack. And I definitely want to go back to the your, your thoughts on natural gas in just a minute. But I know that you're, you're from our previous conversations, your view on the divest uh, from fossil fuel movement has changed over time. So I'd, I'd kind of love to hear um, you, you explained a little bit of your thoughts behind that, but your initial viewpoint in terms of um, yeah, against that movement, and then it, like obviously you're you're currently speaking at events, um, uh, championing it. So how did that transition take place in uh, intellectually for you, and and um, why do you think that we should divest from fossil fuels? Well, first of all, I mean there is a moral and ethical imperative to, to move away from fossil fuels, right? That's, that's underlines this whole thing. So, you know, for, for a university like Princeton with $26 million, billion dollar endowment, um, there's, there's good reason on moral and ethical terms to divest. But I've never been like that. I mean, in my entire solar career, we don't sell the environmental part of it. That might motivate people to talk to us, but it's always about the financial part, right? Making the numbers work. I'm a businessman and I want to have a return on investment on my investment. And so what's happening in places like Princeton that have these, uh, and, and a lot of companies that are dealing with this as well, um, we, shareholders want to see a movement away from fossil fuels for the moral and ethical reasons. But when you look just at the numbers, the numbers have changed. And starting this year, again, we've reached a point where it's not prudent to invest in fossil fuels anymore. And if you look at the evidence of, of the um, investment risk of fossil fuels and any, uh, many of the um, investments that you could look at that include fossil fuels are way underperforming the ones that are in future renewable fuels. I mean, it's so, it's so clear. And just when you think about BlackRock as an example, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock announced they're, they're, they're moving away, they're transitioning out of fossil fuels, they're divesting of, of coal and they're moving away from all fossil fuels. And they're not doing it just because they want to be good guys. They're doing it because the risk to them and their investors is extraordinary in the fossil fuel industry where there are alternatives. And the alternative right now is, is um, renewable energy. And those funds are doing very well right now. Um, and, and frankly, if Biden gets elected with some form of, of green uh, plan, um, it'll be put on steroids even more. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And one um, article that I was reading earlier today by, I believe, Bloomberg New Energy Finance was talking about how they see that, that the ETFs have kind of uh, reversed course in terms of some of the industrials versus, versus clean energy. So uh, I think the main thesis of that article was that, was that uh, the green stocks have already priced in uh, and green uh, green investors have already been priced in uh, to a Biden win. Do you would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I bought into one of the <laughs> ETF, uh, the the Invesco uh, Solar ETF. Uh, I bought into just literally a couple months ago, and it's already gone up like fifty percent. Um, so, and I was thinking this. I was just thinking, look. <clears throat> 
I want to invest in the entire industry. And that's what the ETF does rather than pick a individual company, which I do. I have some of those, but I'd rather invest in the entire industry. And if Biden gets elected, which I hope and expect that he will, there will be more money behind it to, to help uh, accelerate. And so I want to be in solar. And I think that's exactly what happened. And Bloomberg exactly right, because there was a jump up and then it's kind of leveled off a little bit right now, but we'll see what happens. Uh, just a quick follow-up question on that, Tom, about um, uh, the ETF and I guess largely what we call ESG funds or um, the, the divestment movement. I've talked to people and some say that the ESG funds are often graded on a curve as put by uh, um, Matt Levine from Bloomberg. He's a very famous writer. And he says a lot of times it's just regular funds uh, that still track the market, still track a lot of the performances of fossil fuel industries. But then you add up a couple, you know, quote unquote, environmentally friendly, conscious companies. Um, because if you were to only invest in environmentally friendly companies, you probably wouldn't make as good of a return. So it seems that you reject that notion because it seems that from this year on, uh, the more renewable stuff are finally making the, the money. So are we at a sea change right now? Or, or did we already see the sea change happen for a while? It's just people didn't realize that. Uh, well, it's been happening. It's been happening just over the last, what, you know, year, year and a half. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking at these energy sector um, uh, indicators, right? S and P as an example. Uh, but if you look at the five-year analyzed analyzed return of energy, which is conventional energy, it's minus five and a half percent over five years. That's their annual return. The S&P is like eight and a half percent. So as a fund manager, why would you be investing in these crazy, you know, uh, risky industries? Um, and energy is at the bottom of all sectors, financials, healthcare, industrials, real estate, tech, it's crazy. And I think, you know, Fink at um, BlackRock has recognized that and he's putting his, you know, money where his mouth is. One, one thing kind of to pivot away from this conversation a little bit is your work at EDF and, and thinking about how um, EDF as a, as a foreign company that does have a North American branch has been so successful. Other co companies like Orsted are, are the industry leaders in, in their renewable fields. So why do you think these uh, often European companies have come to dominate this space? And, and why do you think uh, US companies have lagged behind even on their own home turf, if you will? Good question. Um, so what I've seen, well, I, I think generally European countries are more environmentally conscious than Americans are. We're more capitalist, you know, they're more socialist. I mean, so they, you know, they put money into healthcare and, you know, environment and things like that. So there's a mentality there that that's different. <clears throat> um, and when you think about solar industry, Germany of all places really jump-started the photovoltaic uh, industry by creating volume by having this crazy valuable uh, incentive program called the feed-in tariff at high levels. And because of that, uh, a lot of companies were, including the one I worked with at the time, Powerlight, um, we went to Germany because there was this really great incentive there to build uh, solar projects. And so they had massive solar projects. We built our first 10 megawatt um, project. That's the biggest one we ever did as a company. Um, in, in Bavaria. Uh, so because of Germany, um, you know, some manufacturing from Japan came in and, uh, you know, there was enough volume that prices started going down. And there were other European countries like Spain, as an example, Italy did some of the similar things. They weren't necessarily sustainable because the numbers were so crazy, the, the, uh, the uh, incentives they were providing but it did help get the industry going. And so you have this a mentality that's different. And the companies like EDF, it's basically, EDF is the utility in France. It's one utility, it's EDF. Um, and it's based mostly on nuclear energy. Right? So they have a big nuclear fleet. 
um, the goal of EDF group the, that owns nuclear is to have uh, by 2030 to have 50% of their energy from renewables and the other 50% from nuclear. So it's all clean. No more investment in fossil fuels at all. Um, so that's, that's EDF. Now, these companies have gotten experience uh, and there are others, they're Italian, a company called NL. Uh, there's another French company called Engie, E-N-G-I-E, um, that had enough kind of critical mass and ability to um, invest. They came to the US because we have, you know, we're a capitalist society and we have free market here and there are states that have incentives. And so they've come rushing into the US because in a market-based system, you can you can make investments and um, you know with with some expectation of pretty good return. So that's what's happened. These European countries have dominated uh, our business here. But having said that, there are hundreds, thousands, and there are thousands of solar companies in, in California. There are 500 solar companies in New Jersey. You know, they're big, small, medium all like working to uh, do the same thing, which is just build as much solar as we can. So I'm very bullish on American companies. Um, and, you know, EDF Renewables, the, the, the group I'm in is a North American uh, subsidiary. All we do is wind, solar and batteries. It's, it's interesting thinking about the, the massive influx, I think uh, what you were just mentioning in terms of the number of companies and, and entrepreneurs getting into this space. So one theory um, that I've, I've read about a little bit is uh, the possibility of price cannibalization. So renewables, unlike many other sources of electricity, have very little variable costs. And so when power is added to the grid, the gap between supply and demand um, grows and power prices generally dip a little bit lower. And additional renewables added to the grid, aided by government subsidies, pretty much dampen the profits of existing renewables and too much renewables can, can create negative power pricing as, as this theory goes. So what's your, your thought on this price cannibalization concept? Is it like a completely crazy theory or does it hold a, a little bit of value? What, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I don't think it's anything to worry about. Um, and I really haven't seen that, <laughs> much of that, but uh, I mean, the truth is, um, if there are incentive programs that are too rich and they could be dialed back and it's no, it's not in no one's interest to have incentive programs that are too rich. You want to have incentive programs is what you need for the moment. And so the kind of structure I'd like to see uh, with incentives on a state level, and we could do this on a federal level if we got our act together, um, is you put a, you put a plan together to give some uh, time period, say five years, six years, seven years. Um, where a company knows that there's going to be a, 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 an incentive in place for that period of time. So we can make investments with that. But the, the, the incentive structures I like are the ones that have a certain uh, block of, uh, of incentive that once that block is filled, you drop down to a, a lower block. So as an example, just as an uh, example, if you're getting a 10% rebate uh, in the first block of 10 megawatts. And once that 10 megawatts is used, it drops down to 8% rebate. And you just keep doing that over time. And the federal government has done it to some extent too, because with the, the investment tax credit is phasing out over time. And we're fine with that. Um, so you shouldn't, policymakers should not be over incentivizing because that's when you get those situations. And uh, you need to develop policy that uh, it recognizes that and that will phase out over time. We can go into Texas right now with no state incentive and produce three cent power cheaper than they're buying on the grid. So that's good news. And that's where we should be. We wanna to get to a point where we don't need these state incentives or we don't even need the ITC. And we'll get there at some point because our, our pricing keeps coming down. So I think one common rebuttal to that would be thinking about the different geographical differences between states. And, and at Princeton, we experience this too. Like Princeton has, has made a big commitment to renewables in some sense, but also it's pretty far away from a 100% renewable energy goal. 
mainly because of the different geographic dynamics where solar is less viable than in than in Texas and wind is less viable than in northern Texas and Oklahoma. So is there any hope for areas like Princeton's a very committed area, I would say, in terms of a, a liberal bubble hoping to get to 100% renewable energy. But if they can't, if, is there any hope for areas less committed to the cause or, or areas that are less well positioned geographically? Yeah, I mean, Texas is not well, you know, they're not committed. <laughs> that's, just the that's just the nature of their energy system right now. Um, so there are other factors besides how much sun you have. I mean, how much sunlight is important. But you know what the cost of what conventional energy costs, as an example, and New Jersey does not have cheap, you know, grid energy. Uh, cost of labor, cost of land, all these things have impact. Um, Pennsylvania, as an example, Pennsylvania has lots of land. Um, they have, um, they do not have a a uh, incentive program that works right now. But uh, you can, you can. That's in our mind, it's going to be an emerging market because you've got lots of land where you could get cheap land to build big solar panels. You can, um, you get relatively cheap labor costs there. That's also good. And so, with just a little bit of incentive, you could probably do a lot of solar in, in Pennsylvania. And then over time, those incentives can fade away again. So, um, if we had a federal national energy plan uh, that was uh, rational, um, it would help. The US just happens to have a 50 state energy plan that the state decides on what their energy you know, policy is. So there's been some, you know, there's definitely disparity uh, with people that have access to solar because it depends on the state incentive. And that's where the industry's gone. California is an example. New Jersey used to be number two until the last administration came in and didn't help at all. And that faded away. We're number like five now, but North Carolina, uh, Texas, even um, Maryland, Massachusetts. So it does, it's not liberal. It's, it's not a liberal thing or, or a conservative thing. It's a financial thing um, and it's a job creator and it's a policy thing. So any rational policy that helps um, solar will will help their both the people getting the energy and also job creation. So kind of digging a little bit more into the 100% renewable idea. Um, and maybe we could just like specifically focus on Princeton because you you've obviously been been a huge help to, to getting Princeton and to a cleaner future and in a greener energy consumption um, package. But how do you see the the leap for Princeton in terms of going from where it is now uh, to 100% renewable energy consumption? So Princeton's done an interesting thing. First of all, they've committed this institution to be carbon uh, neutral by our 300th anniversary, which is 2046. Um, that's okay, <laughs> but I think we could do a lot better. Uh, and I would encourage that with, with, uh, with the university. Um, and the guys at McMillan that run the energy plant there, they're, they're also, they're also um, much more aggressive, I think, than that goal. And they're gonna help the university get there. So what the university is doing is a two-pronged thing. One is um, it's putting solar on site where they think they can. So the original project I developed for Princeton was five megawatts. We're in the middle of developing a second round of um, projects, 15 megawatts. So three times that size. And those, those uh, solar arrays will be on the parking lot. They'll be on garages. They're on, on a couple of field mounted uh, systems over on, um, on either side of uh, Washington Road. And then out in Plainsboro, we're doing a ground mount and a rooftop at the data, uh, data center. So that's another, that's another phase. But another very important thing that they're doing right now, if you're on campus, you'll, you'll know what's this stuff going on. They're building what's called a geo exchange heat pump. So what they're gonna do, instead of using the thermal plant that they have now, they have a gas fired cogen system that produces electricity and heat. It heats and cools the campus right now. 
Um, they're going to phase that out and have it as a backup for emergency power only. And they're drilling these wells that go down like 750 feet. And the heat pump will extract heat in the, in the winter, uh, increase it through its heat pump process, and then circulate it around campus. So the campus will be heated by heat pumps then. In, in the uh, summer, the opposite happens. You take the heat from the building and you pump it into the ground and you end up using the ground and rock down there as kind of a big thermal storage uh, plant. So going to this electric driven heat pump enables them now to do two things. One is use the, the solar electricity we provide on our systems, but also um, they could go out beyond the campus and contract for wind, offshore wind, which is being developed in New Jersey, or big solar plants somewhere offsite so that the electricity that they use for this heat pump, a very efficient way to heat and cool, um, will be powered by solar. So in my mind, I'm pretty sure these guys have in their heads that they're gonna beat that 2046 uh, plan by a lot. That's exciting. So Tom, just a little bit more about that vision, that future of renewable energies dominating our lives. How would you compare solar with other renewable energy forms? Some people say nuclear should be an essential part out there. Uh, there might be other forms of, of, of generating maybe geothermal or something else. Uh, where do you see the mix? And also more importantly, what do you see as the shortcomings and advantages of solar? Okay, well, first of all, nuclear is not renewable. Um, you're using, you know, some kind of <laughs> nuclear fuel uh, that needs to be used and then stored somewhere. Um, and the I suppose it's cleaner than it's- It's, it's cleaner, it's cleaner, it's okay, it's cleaner. But those investments are not being made. You may notice that the no new nuclear plants have been built for a long time is because they're too freaking risky, financially risky. I'm not talking about, you know, danger. I'm talking about finance, financially. So, um, but other renewables. So renewables is being dominated by solar and wind. Uh, and, and the big, the big change over the last few years is that um, batteries are, are now emerging as a way to store the energy and um, deal with the intermittency of wind and solar. So, what I like about solar is you could put it anywhere. So literally, you know, parking lots, uh, brownfields, rooftops. There are a lot of places you could put solar that you don't have to use farmland. Um, there are opportunities to use farmland in, in some cases, but I'm not a big advocate of just wiping out farms for solar. Um, so that that's, the, the, again, the, the, the democratic thing, the small d democratic thing of, of solar is you could put them anywhere. It could be on a barn, it could be on a school, it could be anywhere. And, and that's why it's reached, that, that's why it's got so much momentum right now. Wind is cost effective, but you don't have a wind resource everywhere. So, um, you know, and you have these big wind turbines that some people don't want to have in their backyard. <laughs> Uh, so there's a lot of offshore wind being developed right now. My company, EDF, is involved in that. We have, a, by the way, we have a joint venture with Shell for offshore wind in New Jersey. So there's a case of a oil company, oil and gas company, transitioning to clean, clean energy. And I think that's a really good thing. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I think uh, diving, diving into this a little bit more, do you see solar as kind of the dominant part of that mix? Because um, different people have kind of different energy projections, different energy models where it spits out different different things. I, I believe the IEA believes it's going to be a, a huge part of the mix in terms of 30 to 40% solar. Would you say that's too ambitious or kind of right on target? No, I think it's at least on target. Solar, again, because you can put solar anywhere, it's it's you just need to have access to sun wind is harder you know because you just don't have these uh, places that wind is uh, consistently you know you have consistent wind 
that makes the investment in those uh, big wind turbines worthwhile. That's why they're going offshore because there's constant, there's almost constant wind offshore in the oceans. Uh, it's expensive to do it that way, but um, you know now they got the price down to where the numbers work. And again, New Jersey's doing their thing for it. It's a pretty impressive amount of wind to be going on in New Jersey, multi gigawatts, thousands of gigawatts. Um, replacing nuclear power plants. I mean, that's the beauty of those things. They, they produce a lot of power. One thing as well that's kind of in the alternative technology sector and also related to the ocean and related to solar, I'm sure you kind of know where this is going, is, is the idea of hydropower reservoirs or floating solar. Um, so a recent Department of Energy report detailed how hydropower reservoirs, which often contain a great deal of open flat water, could serve as a location for future solar panels. There's also investors looking into putting it literally in the ocean uh, in terms of floating solar panels. So what's your view on this technology? And in a broader sense, how involved is EDF in pursuing projects that, that are, are this riskier or are a little bit earlier on in their maturity cycle? Yeah, floating solar is like a relatively new thing. It's, and I love it. In fact, I'm working on a project now in New Jersey um, on the Wanaku uh, Reservoir. We're gonna build a 10 megawatt system. So we've been awarded the project. We're in the process of developing it right now. Um, the beauty of being on a reservoir, and again, this is where the, it's a non-recreational body of water you float, you have some form of flotation and the solar panels go on top. Um, it's not that complicated. Again, solar, you could put anywhere you have access to the sun. The beauty of this is that um, it has multiple benefits. I mean, first of all, you're getting, you're using this area that is not used for anything else. Um, and by being on the water, you actually keep the water cooler because the sun is off the water. And as a result of the water being cooler, you have less algae growth. So these water you know, uh, districts, as an example, have to use less chemicals to get their water cleaned um, and, and remove the algae. And then the other benefit is because you're on a cooler surface with solar, the solar panels are more efficient. They work more efficiently when it's cooler. They're, they're a semiconductor. Um, so that's pretty interesting new way of doing it. So, you know, like cooling ponds, uh, drinking water reservoirs, old quarries that have filled up, those are really good places to put these floating solar. Now the ocean stuff uh, is more about, I think, you know, wave technology where a lot of companies have tried to figure out how do you harness the, the energy in, you know, in waves or, or even in the tides uh, or the, the flow of water in the Hudson River, as an example. And um, it just hasn't happened yet. And I think part of it is it's, it's such a harsh environment. It's hard to have these mechanical systems, you know, uh, susceptible to that, the, um, the, uh, the hardship they have in, technically. And so we haven't seen a lot of those um, technologies. I'm all about it though. Anything like that is really, you know, let's go for it, figure it out. It's maybe great. Are there any other technology types that are kind of on your radar as far as solar goes and, and kind of the next few years here? No, I think the latest thing, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, that now there are these bifacial solar panels that get energy from both sides of the panel, um, which is kind of interesting. So you get extra output for the same area. That's one thing. <clears throat> but the biggest development of, of technical development lately is just the introduction of introduction, sorry, introduction of energy storage. Um, and, and now with electric vehicles. So it's electric vehicles have really driven the cost of batteries down. There's a big demand for electric vehicles. Um, and so that's helped what we do stationary uh, batteries. And when you add a solar system to a you, you add batteries to a solar system and then you have EV chargers. It's a really great mix of technologies where I could go into, well, even in Princeton. So um, we can charge the batteries with solar. Having that energy can take the intermittency of solar out. So you have constant energy when you need it. And uh, during peak times, 
when energy costs are expensive, you can discharge a battery. Um, and then if you have emergency and your power is out from the grid, you have backup power. And now with electric vehicles charging, you can charge these electric vehicles with solar, which is also very cool. So this is all heading towards this idea of distributed generation where you have these uh, power plants all over the place, whether it's in your home or in the building or, or in a field somewhere and somehow controlled and coordinated by some central authority, um, you, you can put a lot of solar on the grid and um, make it clean. Yeah, just for our, our listeners who might not know the, the topic of uh, distributed energy super well, would you mind just taking a minute to describe in your own words what that is? Yeah, so we talked about a microgrid uh, before. Um, so distributed just means instead of these big central power plants, which is the, the traditional way of doing things, uh, and you have wires and it, you, know, you get power that way, um, you, just, you, you, you put smaller plants all over the place, whether it's a five megawatt plant or a 10 kilowatt plant on your rooftop, those are all distributed assets. Um, the introduction of batteries makes it more predictable and dispatchable. So you know you have energy at any time. And if you, if you put enough of these assets in the grid, you don't need a big coal plant you know, somewhere along the river. You don't need that anymore. All you have to do is control all these assets that you have. And when you need power, you call upon the battery. You could shut down the solar if it's, oper if it's producing too much or beyond what you want. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to um, have this interactive grid. Well, you know, your car, as an example, if it's sitting idle, um, you, could, you could enter it into a program where they could take some energy out of your car when they need it and they'll pay for it. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on. And um, artificial intelligence is all part of this and you know, machine learning and trying to figure out how to integrate all these distributed assets and do it in an efficient, uh, cost-effective way. One of, the, one of the big things in the uh, distributed energy world is the concept of net metering. So I know that uh, the vast majority of states have uh, net metering programs or had net metering programs to help compensate end users who generate their own electricity, which is a fancy way of just saying folks with solar panels on their roof. So uh, net metering doesn't only allow producers to make money through generating their own electricity, but makes it a lucrative operation by offering the higher retail price instead of that of the generated uh, electricity. So some policymakers view this as a direct subsidy to small-scale electricity production, and, and it does impact kind of the economics of, of how you guys see things at EDF and also how people see things when they're putting solar panels on the roof. So I'd love to kind of hear as, as both the um, executive of, of, a, uh, of a group doing utility-scale work and as an individual who loves solar, what's your view on net metering and, and how do you think states will continue to interact with this, this policy forum moving forward? Okay, um, so net metering really is just allowing uh, solar, uh, a building uh, that has solar on it to move the meter backwards. So it goes back and forth. So if, you, if you're producing more energy during the day than you used, it will send the energy back to the grid and it literally turns your meter backwards. So at the end of the month, the meter reader reads your meter and he doesn't know where the energy came from. All he's looking at is how much was used that uh, month. Sometimes it's a negative number. And if it's negative, it just, it just uh, goes over into your next month bill as a credit, okay? So it's not really selling to the utility. All it's doing is um, netting out over the course of a year, solar production versus what you buy from the grid. In New Jersey, they don't allow solar systems that do more than 100% of their own demand in the building. So you can't produce 120% of what you need in your house and sell it. So that's, that's not, not the way it works. Now, this was a construct to incentivize and allow um, uh, you know, the benefits of solar and how, how it works. I mean, you, you normally do produce more than you need during the course of the day, but at night you're drawing power because there's no sun. All right, so that's that. The idea, um, let's put it this way. 
ratepayers have paid for the distribution grid. Okay, it's not the utilities; they're not paying for that. The ratepayers are paying for, it. and so we're paying for the power plants that they built. Ultimately, we're paying for the wires that they built, the transmission wires. Those are investments that we've made as a society over years. So we should have we should have the right to have access to that, and and net metering is a version of that. We have access to the grid that we've paid for. We as ratepayers have paid for. So I don't buy that argument, okay? And that was always the argument that the utilities made in the early days before net metering became popular. So every state had to go through these arguments with the, with the utilities um, on net metering to allow net metering. Um, and so most, most of the states now allow net metering and it, and it does help because you can build these systems that are, are valuable. Now, I don't, we need the wires. We want the wires. That's a more efficient way to do it. It's good that we have these wires. There may be other ways to pay uh, for those wires and upkeep over time or expansion of them, but um, don't, don't hold that against the solar industry. Do you think the burden falls on the utility to uh, make a smart grid or the, the rate payer or kind of both? What, what's your it also, no, it's ultimately the rate payer, but the utility won't do it on their own. Policymakers have to decide what they want. In New York, they're doing it a, a very interesting. They're, they're looking at um, a, a whole new vision for their grid, and they're going through these processes of, of looking at that. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. So utilities typically use, you know, a whole bunch of equipment, um, to, you know, the, transformers and, and all sorts of protective equipment to operate their grid. Um, and, and in some cases, they, there's some new growth. And so they have to go in and put a whole bunch of new uh, equipment in there. And when they do that, they get a return on their investment. That's how, that's how it's been working. They get a regulated return on their investment. Um, now, what New York has done is they're telling utilities, when you're looking at those kind of investments, let's look at non-wires alternatives, other ways we might be able to do that. And that would include something like solar and batteries that are non-wires, they're not doing their traditional way. That's a movement towards a distributed uh, grid. And um, I, think that, I think that's where we're going. That makes sense. And, and to pivot one more time, uh, last kind of subject matter. Um, so I know you love kind of the mentorship piece that your job brings. Uh, and, and you mentor a great deal of students uh, from Princeton and elsewhere, including me, who, who love learning about energy and the future of energy. So how do you encourage students to take on this field? And why do you feel so optimistic about the future of US energy and specifically solar energy? Um, so the reason I like doing that is um, because I want what I've been doing to live on. <laughs> um, and I think it's important for the planet that we, we move to 100% renewable or 100% clean sooner than later. Um, and in order to do that, we need talent. And because the industry is growing so rapidly, there's need for talent, which is great. But the cool thing for students is like, there are some great jobs in this industry. And so, you know, rather than, you know, for Princeton grads, you know, traditionally, a lot of people have gone to Wall Street, a lot of people have gone into consulting. Those are fine jobs. Um, but I'm trying to get, I'm trying to have more Princeton students and others, other young people coming out of school to look at the renewable industry. And if you look at what's available. I mean, every company has a website with, with a career page and lots of jobs. And these are some really cool jobs that are happening. And not like when I started solar where I had to borrow money to get my system going and live on nothing for years. Um, you get paid, <laughs> you get 401k, you get healthcare. Um, so there are real jobs in the industry and we need talent. And so there's opportunity as a student, there's opportunity to do something that's really exciting and fun and, and, and uh, uh, you know, rewarding, to make a good living, to have an ability to advance in your career and you know, do some exciting things. So um, I really, really enjoy that. 
and you know, I, I started a LinkedIn group called Princeton and Solar a couple of years ago. We have 180 members right now. So these are people that are in the industry or students that are looking at the industry. Um, and um, it, it's an opportunity for students to, you know, tap to uh, Princeton alums that are, that are in the business and alums that are in the business to network together, um, you know, for their own careers. So it's an exciting thing that's uh, occurred here. Yeah, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we, we have been so excited about you coming and, and I've really enjoyed this entire conversation. One thing that we'd love to ask up before, we would love to ask before we wrap up is, what is one contrarian viewpoint that others in your industry might not hold or might disagree with? And then, of course, the name of the podcast is called Policy Punchline. So what is your policy punchline? Huh. Okay, that's a good question. Um, I guess this is not a contrarian thing at, at all, but it is a point I think that's relevant to, uh, today, particularly because of what we're going through right now with COVID. Um, and now we're, as we as we take this interview, we're in the middle of an election, um, a contended, uh, contentious election. <clears throat> and that is that um, if we're to solve these massive consequential issues for us, for all of us on the planet, climate change as an example, uh, social injustice, uh, um, you know, lack of education, lack of clean water, lack of access to, you know, to energy, all those things. In order to do that, we need to cooperate. So this idea of like pulling in, like as an American first policy, as an example, that does not make sense. If we're to, if we're to do something about climate change, we need cooperation throughout the planet, throughout all these governments. And pulling out of the climate um, Paris Climate Accord, as an example, it just doesn't make sense. Those are exactly the kinds of things we need to do. We need to build up the World Trade Organization. We need to continue to be a leader in, in World Health Organization, United Nations, and so forth. And the cool thing about solar technology is that technology could be exported anywhere and literally put anywhere, whether it's a village in Angola or it's in South Africa or China, uh, India. There are places around the world that don't have access to clean water. They don't have access to power. And these things can change people's lives for the better. And um, so, on, so on a global basis, we need more cooperation, not less. And that's with our competitors our enemies, we need to cooperate as humans and uh, help save the planet. A very optimistic punchline, a fascinating interview. Tom, thanks so much for joining Owen and me. Thank you so much. It was Thank a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. It's great work you're doing, by the way. Thank you. Thanks. Well, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, go listen to us on iTunes, Spotify. You can watch this video on, on YouTube. Uh, this is our ongoing coverage for energy led by Owen. So thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.